Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good morning, everyone. I was just riding away on the board and I turned around and it's really quiet. <laughs> all of a sudden, y'all are all of a sudden started uh, not listening to yourselves and said, what in the world is he writing? Because we can't pronounce those words. So uh, we'll talk about those unusual words in just a little bit. But we are going to be studying this morning in John 19. This is part two of chapter John 19, uh, or John chapter 19, <laughs> I should say. And... Uh, so before we get there, let's let's open with a prayer before study of Scripture. Ask the Lord's enlightenment upon our study time together. Let's pray together. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. We are into the narrative of John on the crucifixion of Jesus. This verse 17 begins with the words, And so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. So we have now gone through the trials, both the trial with the Jews, the trial with Pilate, and we've uh, studied that the last couple of weeks, and now it's time for the actual crucifixion. We talked last week about his scourging and the deep trauma that that inflicted on the body. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the trauma of the cross and things perhaps in the next couple of weeks as we get a little deeper. Because I don't want to go too fast through this last part of the chapter uh, 19, there's just a lot of stuff to go over. And so I want to talk about the cross. Uh, let's read just the first uh, five verses, of 17 through 22. So I guess not the first, but the first for today. Verses 17 through 22 is where we'll pick up the story today of the crucifixion of Jesus. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote a title and put it on the cross. It read, quote, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, end quote. Many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews then said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. <coughs> let's stop there for now. So let's think about the place of this, uh, this happening John is giving John is providing us some details, okay? And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, and I know some of you have, you will know that there are a couple of places that archaeologists and historians and different people like to tell us where the crucifixion uh, might have taken place or probably took taken place. Most things in the Holy Land are not exact because it's hard to be exact 2,000 years later. There's a few that you know. You're right there where Jesus was, but you're, you're in the general area. And one of the things that's confusing to some when they study and think about this is uh, there is within Jerusalem two sets of walls. 
an outer wall and an inner wall. Okay, in Jesus' day, there was only the inner wall. So when it says that Jesus was outside the city, it means that when you go to visit there, the old city, which is inside, there's a certain wall that was there in, in Jesus' time. There was later built another wall. So the city of Jerusalem is walled with two separate walls. And when you uh, visit a place called, there's two places that are, that are perhaps most identified, both with the crucifixion and the burial or the resurrection. One would be the site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We all know what the word sepulchre means. It means like a, a grave. So the Holy Sepulchre, the Holy Grave. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is this huge, monstrous, big building that covers a lot of land. And within it uh, is said to be the Mount Golgotha. Okay, Mount Calvary is we're more used to calling it. Okay, and you enter in. Some of you were there with me. You might remember you actually climb some steps and you, you and the way they built that church. I, I wish I could show it to you. There was there there is a uh, there's a graphic that I didn't have time to prepare for this class, but there is a graphic. I've used it before when I've spoken sometimes on the Holy Land, and it shows you what it what the ground would have looked like back in Jesus' day. There was no building there, okay? And it's very close to the city, and it's outside the old wall of the city. It's actually inside the, inner, the, the, the main walls that are there today, but it's outside the old wall, okay? And we know that Jesus suffered outside the gate, the book of Hebrews tells us, and that they took them outside the walled city to suffer and to be crucified. And so in that what is now in this church, there is this area where you climb up and you see in, in some glass in the wall. Of course, there's church built all around it where people worship, but there is boulders and stones that would have said to have held the cross of Christ or the crosses where these things were crucified. And this is, this is remembered and hallowed as, as a holy site. Uh, within that same huge building, you would descend Mount Calvary and you would come around and you'd come back around to a burial site that is considered the tomb of Christ where they would have laid him. Again, in that day, all outdoors, okay, all nearby. One of the things scripture tells us is that we're not there yet, but when we get to that part of the scripture in John, it tells us that the garden, the tomb, Jesus was laid in a tomb in a garden nearby, very nearby, okay. So then the second place is a place further out. It's, a, it's a quite a bit further, actually, outside the walls. And um, they call it Mount Calvary, and there's this big rock and rocky hillside, if you will. And it looks almost like maybe 2,000 years ago there was these carved-out areas that kind of looked like naturally you know, eroded areas, kind of looked like a skull, you know, sunken eyes, that sort of thing. Do y'all remember that that place too? Um, and and they and that is sort of not too far from the place called the Garden Tomb, okay, where there's an actual tomb that would have been like the tomb with a stone that rolled in front. Um, so, a couple of places where you can go and kind of meditate and think about these events that we're reading about right here and studying right here. Um, most historians, most scholars will lean towards the accurate site of being the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, not the other Mount Calvary uh, place of the skull, not the, uh, which was actually, interestingly enough, and the garden, which that, that skull rock type place, you, you got to use your imagination to look at it and see a skull there. And, and when you think of how much the earth has eroded over 2,000 years, it didn't even look like that back then. But we, we learned that Actually, a British, the British, uh, what's fascinating is when you go there, you, you no longer use your Jewish guide. When you go into that place, it's the British who take over, and they have this, and they discovered it in the 19th century. So it's, it's a very recent, quote, discovery of what they think Calvary might be, and uh, doesn't have the historicity that the old one does, that the Church of Sepul the Holy Sepulchre does. Say all that to say this: What there would have been when Jesus was going outside the city, bearing his own cross, 
he was going to a place where they would have often crucified people. The Romans crucified people a lot. And so there was a hill, and I've drawn a cross on the board for you to think what Jesus was carrying was not the whole cross, okay? Dragging the big long part behind him and holding on to the cross, but he wasn't doing that. First of all, he wouldn't have been strong enough. Pretty much nobody would have been strong enough, especially after they'd been beaten pretty bad. But he was carrying this. This is called the patibulum. The patibulum is the crossbar, okay, the crossbeam where his arms would have fell. Uh, you can remember back to the old plays we used to produce, the Passion Plays, Living Pictures, and that's how we had Jesus walking down the, the aisle carrying that. And the, the, this is called the stipe, the, the long stem of the cross. That would have already been planted in the ground. Okay, that, they didn't want to just be replanting this all the time every time they had to crucify somebody. So uh, there, were, there was an area where they did crucifixions. It was close, very close to the wall of the city where people could pass by and see it just outside the gates. And this fits very well with the side of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It would have been anchored into the ground. If you know anything about the soil there, it's very rocky. It would have most likely couldn't dig a deep post hole very easily, but would have anchored it and secured it with big boulders and things. Fits this image that you see of these huge boulders down below this glass. And so the reason I drew that cross there, of course, the scripture, John's giving us some neat details. He's telling us that he had to bear his own cross. He's telling us that it was a place called the place of the skull, which... The historians there, the British, want to tell you in their place that it was called the place of the skull because it looks like a skull, which maybe did, maybe didn't. And also that there was so many Roman, there were so many Roman uh, crucifixions that there was this dead skulls laying here. The Romans would just leave them on the cross until they decay and everything for for a long time, which may be true in some cases. And then it was called the place of the skull because there's so many skulls laying around there, possibly. Although Jews, and you would think that most of the people being crucified in Jerusalem were Jews. Okay, they're going to crucify Romans there. Uh, very rarely, I'm sure. Maybe a pretty bad case criminal might get get arrested and put to death there. But but the reality is, Jews don't leave their bodies on the cross for long times. Jews don't necessarily. I mean, they would take the dead body and they would bury it. So hard for me to buy into the British one. I'm not trying to put them down. I'm just saying. When and if you ever go, take some time at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because history is on the side of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And, and it's an amazing, amazing experience. So John's telling us that he was not only carried this off to this Mount Calvary, to this Mount Golgotha, uh, which was a hilled and risen area, he's telling us there were how many crosses? Three. He gives us some details. There are three crosses. He even gives us the detail that Jesus is where on those three crosses? In the middle. middle. That's right. Why is John telling us these incredible details? Fulfilling scripture, prophecy. Amazing. Remember, John's writing this and reflecting back. There's no way those Roman soldiers knew they were fulfilling scripture. Let's put Jesus in the middle, you know. The, The prophet Isaiah says, and he was numbered between thieves numbered among the transgressors okay so this is the fact that they put jesus who is pilate's written on their hail the king of the jews the fact that they put jesus on a cross who is supposedly a king with a couple of common robbers is kind of a slap in the face to the jewish people and to jesus himself so isaiah says he was numbered among the transgressors the sinners um so there, there is some fulfillment of scripture in what in prophecy and what John is giving us in some of these details. But then he also gives us this wonderful detail about the fact that Pilate put a title. This was called a titular, a titular. Uh, and that's where we get the English word title from. But it was a sign that carried a title. Okay? And in Latin called a titular. Now, the title that was on it, John is very specific. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, right? So I've written some things on the board here that um, maybe you can, you can tell, tell me what they, 
Have you ever seen a crucifix? If you see a crucifix, like you in a typical Catholic uh, church would have a crucifix behind the altar or in many different places sometimes, but that crucifix usually has on it this little sign right here. Now, let me make it a little bigger. That's not bigger, is it? Not real good at art to draw from this far away. So on this little sign, if you see a crucifix around somebody's neck or whatever, it usually just looks like this. You ever see those letters on the, on the sign of a crucifix? In Rai. Two words, In Rai. That's what this one is up here, In Rai. Why does that? John tells there's three languages on that cross. Why would they just put In Rai? You ever wonder about that? That's the Latin phrase. It's a, it's a basically, and and I don't know what you call it. It's initials. Okay, it's an initial sign that on Jesus. You can bet on Jesus. It's probably was hand painted on there or something. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and three signs. So it's a fairly good sized sign to hold all that. Probably wasn't very neat, but it was more than just this. This is the Latin. This is why the Roman Catholics put that on their cross, and it says on their crucifix. In Rai stands for Jesus. The V in Latin is a U. Jesus Nazarenus Rex Idiorum. Jesus Nazareth, King Rex is King of the Jews. Shortened, you take the first letter from each one of them. I N R I. I N R I. In Rai. <laughs> Now you know why every crucifix that you seem to see says in right. However, if you go into a Greek church or an Eastern Orthodox church of some persuasion, be that uh, you know Antiochian or Russian or Serbian or whatever, you don't see this. Okay, you see I N B I. Most commonly, you see I N B I. I N B I. Why, why would they change that? Well, in Greek. Jesus ho Nazarenus, Jesus the Nazarene, or Jesus of Nazareth, literally. Uh, ho Basilius ton, I forgot my letter in there, ton Iudeon. Jesus ho Nazarenus, ho Basilius ton Iudeon. This means Jesus of Nazareth, King of Jews. It says the same thing, but it's I-N-B-I, because this word is Starts with a B, where instead of Rex, okay, the Basilius would be king. In, uh, but interestingly enough, there are some. Now there are a few. If you're in a, happen to be in a Russian area, you might see that it says I N C I, and this is the Slavic language, Church Slavonic, Kari Slavi, king of the king of the Jews there. So the C was for the Kari. So I N C I would be more of a Russian or Slavic church. But then many, 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 many Eastern Orthodox churches don't say I-N-B-I. They don't say, they use the last word. Instead of king of the Jews, they use the word doxus. So there would be a D. Does anybody know what doxus would mean in the Greek? They say the king of glory. When you see an icon painted of Jesus on the cross... In any type of icon, true iconography in an Eastern Orthodox type of spiritual painting, you're going to see this word most office, doxus, because it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of glory. Why would they change it instead of King of Jews? Why would they change it? Why would the iconographer painters of history want to change that? Because iconography... Okay, the painting of icons, which were some of the earliest forms of spiritual storytelling Okay, in the ancient days. They told the spiritual reality, not the actual reality. What's the meaning? What's the symbolism? When Jesus Christ is hanging on that cross, he isn't the king of the Jews. He's the king of glory. He's the king of the world. He's the king of creation, the king of all glory. There are only three people or three groups that ever called him the king of the Jews. Who were those three? 
The Romans, the Roman soldiers actually say it, yes. Mm-hmm. Specifically Pilate. Pilate, the Roman soldiers, and one other group called him the king of the Jews. Sanhedrin? Nope. Got to go way back, further. Good guess, though. That would have been my thought. The Magi. The three kings, or the however many there were. The Magi called him the king of the Jews. We are looking and seeking the one who is born king of the Jews. Okay? So, what did everybody else call him? Everybody else called him the king of glory. The king. Now, the, the Jews themselves, what did they call him? They wanted him, they wanted the sign to say that he said, I am the king of the Jews. They, they don't want to admit that he's any king of the Jews, just that he said he was king of the Jews. But if we go back to Mark's telling of the gospel story of the crucifixion, or Matthew's, like in Mark chapter 15, we read that it says specifically that the chief priests mocked him as he hung on the cross. It says the chief priests mocked him and called him the king of Israel. You think you're the king of Israel? Bring yourself down from that cross. So he was most commonly by the Jews thought to be the king of Israel uh, and mocked as the king of Israel. But a part of, I think John's giving us a lot of unique details here because these are important for us. Why was it important that the sign be written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek? The Romans were Romans. They could just write it, whatever they wanted, just leave it in Rome, in Latin. Why, Why is it important for three languages? I think it, it's important for us to know that this shows us that Jesus is the king of everyone, the king of the world. The Romans were the reigning empire. Jesus, king of Rome. Jesus, king of the world. The Greek was the language of the day. The Greek language is never replaced by Latin. Greek was always more, even though the Romans conquered the Greeks eventually, Greek language was the language of commerce and business that ruled the world. And so that was shows that Jesus is the king for, for the whole world, and specifically in Hebrew, because he is the Jewish Messiah. So we have these fascinating details, details that John is bringing out to us. Now, as we think about Jesus bearing his own cross or carrying his own cross, why do you suppose it was important for John to give us that detail? Why was it important for John to tell us that Jesus had to bear his own cross? Can you think of any biblical symbolism, any types here, that this carrying the cross... Bear our burdens. Bearing our burdens, okay. So this cross, this patibulum, this cross bar may symbolize the bearing of our burdens. What else? Any biblical stories come to your mind? This is really good when you see it, okay? When you see it, it's like, oh, you're going to have one of those, oh, aha moments. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Remember the story when Abraham was going to, was told by God he had to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it tells us, the story back in Genesis tells us that Abraham took Isaac with him. And when they reached the mount where they were going to have the sacrifice, Abraham, it says that Isaac did what? Carried the wood. Carried the wood. Carried the, he ascended Mount Moriah with the wood that his father was going to use to sacrifice him on. Fast forward. I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 years, whatever it is. Jesus, son of the father, carrying the wood upon which his father was going to have him sacrificed for the sake of the world. Amazing parallel, isn't it? Isn't that an amazing parallel? The wood of the sacrifice. So what was just a, what was really an unfulfilled type. Now, Isaac didn't die on that wood, did he? No. So what was an unfulfilled type in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. This is the way we read Old Testament and New Testament. We always look in the Old Testament for types, types and shadows that represent what is actually fulfilled in the New Testament. So Isaac, in the Old Testament story with Abraham and Isaac, Isaac is a Christ-like figure. Isaac represents Christ. Abraham represents the Father. Isn't that amazing? 
Now, another, another story, less obvious and certainly cannot be verified. This place, uh, well, I, I think it can pretty well be verified, but perhaps not official when I say can't be. It is believed by most all scholars that Mount Moriah, where Abraham was, was going to sacrifice Isaac, is the same mount of Calvary. Not necessarily Calvary, but where the temple of Jerusalem was built, okay? Okay, in that area, that, that, that whole mountain area. You know, Jerusalem is kind of a mountain area, okay? Um, so there's, there's a parallel right there, the same mount area. But now, let me take you one further. It is, there is a, there's a tradition. Let me, in fact, I'm just going to read it to you because I think it's kind of fun to hear it. I'm going to just read it to you. This is uh, just a couple of, couple of things here before I read. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on that one just a second. Okay, one of, the, one of the popes of Rome in the 5th century, I think he was in the 5th century, Leo the Great. He was called Leo the Great, Pope Leo the Great. He, he saw an analogy of, of uh, Jesus carrying that cross. Uh, other than just Isaac, he saw a fascinating one that says, uh, he was thinking of the prophet Isaiah who said, unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and sovereignty is laid on his shoulders. Or the government is laid on his shoulders. So what was laid on Jesus' shoulders was the sovereign. Was that cross represents his sovereignty? And Leo went on to say, for to the wicked, the sight of the Lord carrying his own cross was indeed an object of derision, but to the faithful, it was a great mystery revealed. For the cross was destined to become the scepter of his power as king. Beautiful analogy by Leo the Great. But now I want to read this to you. This, I just saw that because I had it underlined. This is the one that I find very fascinating. This is from St. Jerome. We all know who Jerome was in the uh, 400s. He was the one who wrote, translated the scriptures into Latin, the Latin Vulgate Bible. Jerome, uh, contemporary of St. Augustine and, and some of those uh, famous names. So Jerome said this. Jerome, who spent his life writing scripture, remember where Jerome was when he was writing scripture, when he was translating scripture, I mean. When he was translating the scripture, he was in Jerusalem, in actually in Bethlehem, where they say the Church of the Nativity is and where we've been there. In Down below, there is a cell. You can't go down there anymore, but there's a kind of a cellar area where Jerome, and there's a pillar with a statue outside, that said where Jerome actually translated the Bible into Latin. So Jerome knew the area well. And this is just in like the you know 300s, late 300s, okay, early 400s. So we're talking just a few hundred years after Jesus. And here was the tradition that Jerome said. Well then, to bring forward something still more out of place, we must go back yet to remoter times. Tradition has it that in this city, in fact, and he's meaning Jerusalem, in this city, in fact, on this very spot, and he's meaning Mount Calvary, Golgotha, Adam lived and died. So he's saying that tradition has it, Jerome is saying that tradition has it, that at some point way back, at some point in Adam's life, he lived right here and died right here. Okay, And that this place where our Lord was crucified is called Calvary because the skull of the first man was buried here. Now that's unique, isn't it? This is fascinating to me. Because the skull of the first man is buried there. So it came to pass that the second Adam, that's Jesus, right? See, the, the, remember how Jesus is called the second Adam, the one who fulfills all things? So it came to pass that the second Adam, that is the blood of Christ, as it dropped from the cross, washed away the sins of the buried one who was first formed, the first Adam. 
Thus, the words of the apostle were fulfilled. And then he quotes the apostle Paul, who quotes the prophet Isaiah. Ephesians 5.14 quotes Isaiah, both 26, doesn't quote it directly, but 26, Isaiah 26.19 and Isaiah 60, verse 1, where the prophet says, Awake you who sleep and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. I find that absolutely fascinating. Wouldn't it be just like God? You know, things don't things don't happen by coincidence. Things don't, no, we can't prove that that's where Adam died and was buried. Okay, nobody can prove that. That's too far back in antiquity. But there's a tradition for a reason. There's a tradition for a reason, and it's a it was held as a belief by many. We're just so far two thousand years removed from these times and these writings that we don't have a practice of always studying some of these things, like the writings of these great church fathers. That's why when I teach this Bible study, I always like to check with these ancient church fathers. I want to know what did the earliest Christians really think and believe. That's more important to me as a first study than as a later study of somebody from the 20th or the 21st century. So we want to be consistent with our thought. So what would it mean? What would it mean to our faith? If Christ died and his blood was shed right over the skull of Adam's burial. Sin begins with Adam. But it's put to death and it's finished in the blood of Christ. I don't know about you, but my heart just wants to believe that. I think it's beautiful. Who cares if it's true? It doesn't, it doesn't affect any doctrine. <laughs> we'll find out when we get to heaven, won't we? It doesn't affect any doctrine, but it sure illustrates the beauty of the blood of Christ washing away all sin. All sin all the way back to Adam, who was the first sinner. Adam and Eve. Is that credible or what? I just think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. So, so when we see these details, there's so much in the scripture that is calling out to us. Um, when we think about the names on the cross, <clears throat> why those names? Why were they three? Why were the three languages? Why was it here? Why was it important? Now, I think this gives reason to, to talk a little bit about this idea of was it the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that area, or was it the British area out there uh, that they call Calvary? How do we know that any of these places might be the site? Does anybody know the history of how any of these places are discovered? See, the history of the Jewish people, the history of Israel, has a bad ending in the year 70 A.D. Do you all remember what happened in the year 70 A.D.? What happened? The temple was destroyed. By who? The Romans. And the Romans, why did they come and invade and destroy Jerusalem? Do we remember why? Remember why, why did Pilate put Jesus to death? Ultimately, why did he? found no fault in him, but why did he ultimately put him to death? To control the people. To control the mobs, to control this thought of insurrection. The thought that there could be another king rising up. The thought that the, the Jewish people were known for uh, they had zealots among them, and they were known for revolting. And that had happened several times in Pilate's short career, his 12-year career in Palestine. And he had to control it. But he couldn't ultimately, even his replacements couldn't control it. The Jews kept rebelling. It got worse. Between the year 33 AD, if that's the year Jesus was crucified, and the year 70 AD, uh, and, and I say if just because calendars are a little off, but we know it's right around there. Things got worse. Things got a lot worse as the Jewish people tried to revolt yet again. And Rome said enough is enough. And they besieged the city of Rome. You know what a siege is. That means they cut off all supplies to it. They surrounded it with its vast army, cut off all supplies to it, to Jerusalem, to the city of Jerusalem. Because that's the heart and soul of Israel, the heart and soul of the faith. Okay where the temple, the place of God, was believed to be. And they cut it off, and they starved it out. 
And we read about, you can read this history. Now, this isn't in the Bible, of course, but it is in the writings of the antiquities of the Jews by the first century, okay, contemporary of the time, witness of the time, whose name is Josephus. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, writing around the end of the first century, writing about this history. And Josephus, and there are Roman historians that write this too. You could probably name six or seven. There's a lot of history for this. And in this siege, it says that they cut off the city for so long, they literally starved the people out until they turned on one another. Josephus writes that mothers ate their babies. That children, parents killed their children, children killed their parents. That there was carnage in the streets of Jerusalem. It was horrible. So that when the Romans came in, it was easy. They just came in and mopped it up. And they took and burned down the temple of God, the second temple, you know, Herod's temple. They burned it to the ground. They tore it down and burned what was left. So that, as Jesus said, as he stood right there on the Mount, Temple Mount, and he said, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. Tear, he said, tear this temple down. Not one stone will be left upon another. He says, but you tear it down and I will raise it up in three days. Now, he, was, he was talking about the temple of his body to raise in three days. But he was prophetically talking about the fact that this very temple would be torn down. And in 70 AD, it was torn down. That put an end to the Jewish practice of all sacrifice. No temple, no sacrifice. They don't have a temple to this day, never have. They didn't even have a land to call their own from 70 AD until the middle of the 20th century. So Israel's, Israel's life on earth did not end well. Okay, the Jewish land, the Jewish people did not end well. And in the process of that story, of that ending, we see John taking a very careful point, careful to point out to us all these details about the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, and his death, and getting into great detail because Jesus is the final fulfillment of all things. Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. Okay? His sacrifice was the last sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. There's never, never, there doesn't never, there doesn't ever need to be a temple rebuilt. Okay? Even though there's prophecy gurus out there all the time predicting the temple's going to be rebuilt, and they've been predicting that for a hundred years. Some of them predicted the day and the time. They're predicting all kinds of things about how the Jews are going to start up their sacrifice again. You know what the interesting thing is? The only people not talking about it are the Jews. <laughs> they don't want to do it. It's all these Christian Zionists, that, you know, in, in a particular, I use that term Zionist, the Christian zealot type that really want to see this end time prophecy fulfilled. They're trying to make it become a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> We're going to build that temple come, you know, Hades or high water. <laughs> and and it's never been done. I Probably, I don't believe it will be done because I don't think it needs to be done. Jesus' sacrifice was final and complete on Mount Calvary. And John is giving it to us here. And I think this image of the blood of Jesus dripping onto the skull of Adam is huge. Just huge. So This was so believed in the early church that in today, in most any, if you look at depictions of icons, iconography of the crucifixion, you will see down at the, below the, the, the hill where the cross is, you will see a skull. A, a hum, it looks like the remains of a human skull, and it's said to be Adam. The iconographer believed this in the most ancient depictions of icons painted in those first early centuries. And it, it even shows, like, some of them actually show, like, a like a, a coffin or a grave showing this is where Adam, you know, even though it's in a coffin. So remember, icons are teaching spiritual reality, not historical reality. Okay, there wouldn't be a coffin there with Adam's body in it. Uh, but they're teaching spiritual reality. King of glory. So, 
Well, we're, we're covering a lot here. Uh, any thoughts, engagements, or reactions to some of these thoughtful traditions? Some of this is brand new to you, I can tell. You've never heard this before. Any thoughts, comments? Well, I think what's what's most incredible to me is how we see um, a lot of the Old Testament and New Testament kind of folding in on each other, where a lot of what's kind of left open-ended, because Isaac couldn't have been the sacrifice, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of that. So, you know, in a story, it seems like some of these plot threads of the Jewish people are left hanging, but then that's completed in the New Testament with Jesus. And like you said, with all these, these details are here for a purpose. So I love to see that they kind of like fold together. Yeah. So the story becomes one. Absolutely, I, I, I agree. That's to see that, even to see, to see these details down to words like, let me read to you Isaiah's words, uh, like you're saying there, Corbin. Isaiah's words in verse 26. I mean, chapter 26, verse 19 says this: "Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise." Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. That is Isaiah 26, 19. Okay? Um, Isaiah 60, verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, 14, the Apostle Paul, again, quoting scripture, but doesn't quote, you notice he doesn't quote it word perfect, okay, he doesn't quote it word perfect, he doesn't give us chapter and verse, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will give you light, and he's saying this is a fulfillment, he's saying this is a fulfillment of that scripture, now, what we see is these words of the Old Testament prophet, these stories of the Old Testament, like Isaac and some of those that you mentioned there, Corbin, you see the New Testament just fulfilling them, continually fulfilling them. And not only just fulfilling them, but bringing the meaning to fullness. Okay? What does it mean? If Christ is, if you think about those words in Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, together with my body they shall arise. Okay, now I've told you that in the mountain, <laughs> again, here comes one of those goosebump moments, okay? In the, in, the Mount, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there is this area of Golgotha, or Calvary, and there is very close, within the same huge structure. You know, like you'd come down the hill and not rush around the corner, there's a, a tomb. Okay? So right where Jesus died, he is buried. And it says right here, your dead shall live together with my body. Body of Jesus laid there, very near a supposed tradition of the body of Adam. Isn't it interesting that the Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, together with my body, okay? Together with my body, you, that your dead shall live. They shall arise, awake and sing. Uh, the earth shall cast out the dead. Now we know from the story in Matthew the, the resurrection story, and we're not to the resurrection yet, so we won't go too deep into this, but there is a resurrection of the dead when Jesus uh, uh, is crucified. So we're going to see that in a few weeks, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. For now, where does the story go? The story goes uh, to the actual cross itself. Now in verses 23 through 24... In verses 23 through 24, while Christ is hanging on the cross, we see the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. There's typically four on detail here, okay? The Roman uh, detail for a crucifixion at four soldiers. It says, when this, verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, that means they've already got him hanging there, okay? It doesn't mean he's dead yet but he's already hanging there. When they had crucified him, the, they took his garments, they stripped him bare to hang him on this cross. Again, that was part of humiliation, to strip the one bare and, and let them hang there humiliated. Uh, 
It says they took his garments and made four parts, one for each soldier, and also his tunic. So his garments, his tunic, his outer cloak, uh, it says they took them and they divided them and made into four. Is it interesting? Why four? Why not three? Why not two? It's a unique detail, isn't it? Could it represent that divided into four corners of the earth? There are four directions of the earth, north, south, east, and west. No matter where you go, Christ is everywhere. And his garment has been divided, and it's to fulfill everywhere. Okay, But then, it tells John, gives us another very fascinating point. He says, but the tunic was without seam. The tunic would be his shirt, his one close to his body, okay? And it says, but the tunic was without seam, woven from top to bottom. Now picture that. Uh, if you, you know, I was in the clothing business for years before ministry, and uh, it was pretty rare to find anything without a seam, okay? The modern manufacturing process was to, you know, cut the sleeves on a pattern, sew them in with a seam, cut the front and the back, you know, and bring them together with a seam. But that's modern manufacturing. In the old days, they're weaving stuff as a whole, okay? Uh, so it's very rare to see a garment. I'm not sure I know of any garment that exists right now without any seam. Um, but in this day, it says the tunic was without seam, woven from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture. Now, these Roman soldiers don't even realize they're fulfilling prophecy. They're fulfilling scripture. But they are, because it says in uh, the Old Testament, they parted my... I think this is Psalm 22, if I, if I remember right. I forgot to write it down in my notes, but I'm pretty sure it's Psalm 22. 22.18, very good. They parted my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now that's, again, let's see how, uh, let's just jump back to Psalm 22 and uh, see what it says here. It says, in my version here, that which I'm, today I have the new King James beside me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So John is quoting scripture pretty close to, pretty close to word perfect there. They parted my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That can't happen. Nobody could fulfill details down to that, fulfill prophecies down to that detail six, seven hundred years later, okay, or a thousand years later. Do you see what I'm saying? It's amazing when you study the intricate details of the gospel narratives of the life of Jesus Christ and how intricately his life and details fulfill all of the Old Testament. It is truly amazing. It, it's truly, it's divine. There could be no other answer for it. Yes? It's so beautiful, though, that he, where Christ was, um, he surrendered himself to the soldiers was the very garden that Adam sinned. <clears throat> And then when you said that he had bled for the last time, he bled yes. over Adam's skull. Yes. That would be total fulfillment. Isn't that beautiful? Now let's think about this. Why is it important? Why is it important for us that Jesus' shirt was not torn? Let's think about that. Yeah. Ken. I was just wondering why was it important that the Roman soldiers took his robe and and divided it and and his cross and divided it and so on. Why was it important to them? It's a great question. It's a great question. Why was it important to them? He must have been, I mean, you can't, you can hardly believe it was a splendid garment. You know, Jesus was a, a homeless pretty much, you know. Well, Couldn't have been a great robe, though. Uh, yeah, but it probably wasn't a kingly robe. No. But, you know, why, why was it important to him? It's a great question. Um, there's something to this idea that, you know, even the, in just a few verses, we're going to see a Roman soldier, you know, the Roman soldiers even looked upon the cross and said, when he's dead, you know, wow, truly this was the Son of God, you know. 
amazing. So maybe there was this intrigue on their part. Well, let's just hold on to one of these and see what happens, or maybe he's going to be famous or something. I don't know. But I think there is great significance to the fact that they wouldn't tear the inner garment, the one closest to the body, the shirt. Why would they not tear? What, what symbolism can we pull out of that? Any thoughts? Let me give you some from another one of the early church fathers. Listen to this from, this is from Cyprian, one of the uh, early uh, bishops down in Alexandria, I believe. Cyprian said this, this is a sacrament of unity. This bond of a unity inseparably cohering is set forth where in the gospel the coat of the Lord Jesus Christ is not at all divided or cut. Rather, it is received as an entire garment. It is possessed as an uninjured, undivided robe by those who cast lots for Christ's garments, who should instead put on Christ. Holy Scripture says, But of the coat, because it was not sewn but woven... From the top throughout, they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots of whose it shall be. And that coat bore with it a unity that came down from the top, that is, that came from heaven and the Father, which was not to be at all torn by the receiver and the possessor. But without separation, we obtain a whole and substantial completeness. He cannot possess the garment of Christ who parts and divides the church of Christ. That's a huge phrase. Let me read that again. Cyprian says, He cannot possess the garment of Christ who parts and divides the church of Christ. His robe, woven and united throughout, is not divided by those who possess it. Undivided, united, and connected. It shows the coherent harmony of our people who put on Christ by the sacrament and sign of his garment, he has declared the unity of the church. That makes me think of the beautiful hymn that I quoted on Sunday. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. Go ahead, I hear you. I want to hear you. Go ahead, please. Finish it for me. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That's right. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Hear the unity? This coat of Christ represents unity. Woven, there's not a seam in it. It's woven, one, and, and so the, the hymn writer says, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. That, that second verse of that hymn gets me every time I read it or sing it or say it. That is one of the most powerful statements ever. And it, of course, was inspired by Scripture. The Apostle Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one birth. I, I, I guess I want us to see in this, John taking the time to write all these incredible details are so important, so important, because they have so much meaning, and so, rich with, uh, so rich with symbols for us, to have meaning even today, 2,000 years later. Uh, we're going to stop there for today because the next section, when we start verse 25, we're going to see the we're going to see Jesus at the cross speaking words to John himself and his mother Mary, and these are powerful words with much to see. So we'll start that next section next time. Any closing thoughts, comments, at all? Yes, John. The book I'm reading out of is called The Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture. So this is, but if you, I've been blessed to have them all. There's one book for every, well, in John's case, John's 
got two books, so two books in one volume. Uh, but you would need, you know, it's got a shelf this long in my office, so it's a lot of books if you wanted to buy them all. But I think they're invaluable because the only these were these were put together and edited. The general editor was Thomas Oden, a Methodist scholar. Um, it was a project of a kind of an ecumenical project of scholars in the late 20th century, early 21st century, who got together and only had recently had many of the ancient writings of the fathers. People like Cyprian or Jerome, not so much Jerome, but Cyprian, and, and really some of the really more obscure ones. These writings had just been translated into English in the 20th century, in the last half of the 20th century especially. So uh, if you weren't a Greek scholar, you know, you wouldn't know them necessarily. And many a good Protestant scholars and Bible commentators had no access to the early writings of the early church fathers. Um, so they didn't have a, an access to this rich, deep, uh, symbolic meaning. And so that's why when these came out, I said, oh, wow, i got to have those. So I began getting them through the years. I've got the whole set now. But if you ever, you ever want to read one or borrow one, you're welcome to. It's, it's called the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture. And uh, here you see what did the very first people who commented on the Bible and on the faith of Christ, what did they think? And, you know, some of them are, it's fascinating to read, you know, because this, some of the people that it quotes in here are even considered heretics by the history of the church because they're not trying to coat. They're giving you, the, this is what everybody thought. So it's not, it's, you got you to gotta read it with discernment and understand your history and say, no, wait a second, that doesn't sound quite right. What is that guy saying? And then you go out and you look, oh, that guy was pronounced a heretic. Well, his thoughts were a little wild or a little way off or wacky or whatever. But so that's not trying to, Sugarcoat history. It's giving you this is what all was written in the early Christi Christian centuries. Very authentic. So that's what I, and so interspersed in this commentary, you see me reading up here. It looks like I'm not reading out of a Bible. This this has the Bible written into it, every book. So there, there are verses here from, it's divided into sections of study, okay? And then commentary that follows that section. And the version that I'm reading from here in this book that is used for this study is the Revised Standard Version, the old RSV, the one from the 1950s. Okay. Uh, as scholars debate the scholar, the scholastic nature of versions of translations of the Bible, the RSV often comes together as one of the most scholarly, trying to be as true to the original Greek as possible. So... Uh, it's been revised many times. There are new RSVs and things, but just like the King James has been revised into the new King James and things, but uh, the scholars chose it for that reason. Uh, so it's, it seems to have a very ecumenical appeal across the board to many different churches, many different scholars. Good question, though. I, I rarely explain what it is I'm reading from up here. Any other thoughts or questions? Comments? Yes, Sylvia. Uh, on my first trip to Israel, which was Pastor Williams next to the last one, uh -huh. and his last time that we were able to go to Mount, to go to Temple Mount. To the Temple Mount. We were able to get into the Dome of the Rock. Oh, wow. And we know that that's where the temple was built. Right. And now the Muslim mosque, mosque is there. Yeah. The rock. And inside, it's circled around Mount Moriah. Isn't that... You can see the rock. The rock, the, the mount. You can see the rock. You walk around it. You can't get close enough to touch the rock. It's very big, but you walk around it. And you had to leave all your things outside, your shoes, your cameras, wow. everything. So I don't have a picture of it. That wasn't allowed. But we were the last group that was able to get into that before they stopped taking it there. I'm very blessed to have been there. You are, because I've been there twice and I can't get in. Yeah, <laughs> I've never got in. Yeah, it, was, wow. it was amazing. Well, it, it is. It's, there's so much history. That place is where, of course, to the Muslims, it's holy too because they believe, if I get the story right, correct me if I'm wrong, they believe Muhammad ascended from there. Okay, the same rock. But they believe it's the rock where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, Mount Moriah. Now, that's not the hill that Christ died on, but it's very near. You know, Christ died just outside the gate, it says. Okay. I had read in one of the things before we left that there was an indentation where they thought that the ark was, what do you call it? 
the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was laying that you could see the square. Wow, wow. I looked and looked and looked to try to find <laughs> it. I've seen it on a demonstration from a Jewish thing that I had I'd studied before we went. Couldn't see it, yeah. Wow. But it is uh, it's phenomenal. I'm so glad you had that experience. I would love to have that experience to go in there. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Thanks so much for being here today. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, what a blessing and a privilege it is to study your word. As we prayed in the beginning, illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of humanity. You are the lover of our souls. So as we study, would you enlighten us, not with my words, but with your spirit. And may your spirit guide and lead us, even from this place until we meet again. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.